Conversations. Good day, everybody. You have tuned into Med Conversations. I'm Darbel. And I'm Beck. Thanks for listening. It was a cracking podcast you and Rahul put together last week. Thank you very much. I learned a lot about Billy Rubin. Thanks, Darbel. So um, we're getting a little bit lonely over there on our Facebook and Twitter pages. If anyone wants to hit us up, we do have Facebook and Twitter. Surprise, surprise. And we know that you're out there. We've got about 11,000 listeners so far. And I think two likes on our Facebook page. So we'd love it if you could spread the word. Indeed. So today we're talking about acute promyelocytic leukemia, which sounds like this weird esoteric piece of medical trivia, but it is an important thing. It's actually a medical emergency, and let me explain why with the case. So we have unknown male, 59, we presume. He's a guy yeah, I find in his that fif- fascinating that <laughs> an unknown male who rocks up to the emergency department, and you have a look at him, and he's clearly 59 years I'm old. I'm really good at that. Anyway, so a guy in his 50s is found bruised and confused and lost at a motel. You think his birthday is in February? Probably. <laughs> it looks like that. <laughs> so the paramedics were called by the motel owner who went to find the patient to charge him his bill, and then he found him like that, as I said, bruised and confused and lost, didn't know where he was. All the paramedics could really tell us, apart from the fact that he was an unknown male in his 50s, were that his obs had been stable on the way over and that his bare cells were normal as well. So, Beck, mm. in this kind of situation, what are your differentials? What are your differentials for this random, confused person that's found your way, his way into your ED? So, nine times out of ten, anyone walking around confused and bruised is drunk and has fallen over <laughs> or been assaulted. So, um, that would probably be one of the most likely differentials. I'd want to um, do a breath, breath test to see what their blood alcohol content was. For sure. But you have to think first about the most serious things, and that's not the most serious thing. Mm. So I think about this in terms of systemic and in terms of cerebral insults. So, Beck, take me through some systemic possible causes for this bruised and confused unknown male. Okay, so we know that he's not hypoxic or hypoglycemic, but I'd be thinking about those first. Other metabolic abnormalities like electrolyte problems, um, something like sepsis, endocrine issues, a little bit less common, but something like an Addisonian crisis, thyroid storm with a myxedema coma doesn't explain the bruises but with decreased conscious state you can get trauma by falling over and that kind of thing we talked about alcohol but also drugs also other other kinds of medications if they've overdosed on their endo that they got last time they came to the ed Mm. and they, they could present in the same way yeah sounds like a pretty good list and then you've got the brain box type causes so cerebral insults bleeds would be something to think about stroke meningoencephalitis Wernicke, so in an alcoholic, that's a very common cause in the emergency department. Have they had a seizure? Are they postictal? Yeah, exactly. And then there's psych. Yeah, once you've ruled out all of that and you just can't find a good organic cause, then you start thinking, well, maybe this this person has some psychiatric difficulties. So if you were an ED, what would you do next? What would there be the two quickest and highest yield investigations in this man? So I would do three things straight away. Um... I would do a VBG, I'd do a breath test, and a CT brain, mm. as well as sending off a, a whole package of bloods. Yeah, of course. You do all the tests, but they're the ones you'll get back first. So in this particular unknown male, his VBG, the electrolytes were all normal, so that ruled out most metabolic disturbances, but his hemoglobin was 64, worryingly low. CT brain showed a thalamic bleed, so that kind of explains his confusion, but why is his hemoglobin so low? Again, this is ED, so they're used to dealing with a lot of trauma and that kind of thing. So I think, okay, it looks like this guy's been beaten up or something. Uh, let's call the general surgeons. Let's order a pan scan. 
But then, the FB, the full blood exam, came back. Hemoglobin was 64. White cell count, there's no differentials, was 77, and the platelets were 20. So that is a very, very worrying full blood exam type picture, FBE type picture. So and white cells are that high, does he have a really, really severe infection that uh, also is bringing his platelets down? Probably not. It's a pretty short list of differentials, actually. This has got to be cancer. That's all, all I can really think of that can give you that. So that at that point, I'm called the MedReg. I hear the story... And having done a recent term on hematology, I drop whatever I'm doing at the time and I power walk to the emergency department because I know this is serious. <laughs> but why Why did I power walk? Like, cancer's serious, right? It takes a... It can kill people, but usually it's days, weeks, months. You know, you don't have to... It's not a minute-to-minute -minute thing. You could probably yeah. walk at a normal pace. Yeah, I'm, I'm not really sure why you power walk. <laughs> Training? No, because there is one important exception. There's one cancer that we need to know about that is an acute emergency, and that's APML, acute promyelocytic leukemia. And that's because it's very dangerous in the, sh in the short term. When this was first discovered, it was uniformly fatal. It just killed everyone. But then we now have this particular cure, uh, all transretinoic acid, that's really, really effective. And if you can get people to that treatment quickly and get them through that first really dangerous period, they're very likely to survive and live a normal life afterwards. Okay. And that's more or less just vitamin A. Yeah, that's right. Amazing. Yeah. It's pretty cool. We'll talk about it a little bit more in a second. So what is APML? So first characterized in 1957 by French and Norwegian physicists. No, phys physicians. <laughs> <laughs> physicists are amazing, though. I'm surprised. Um, as a hyperacute fatal illness. So uniformly fatal. And it's a subtype of AML, acute myeloid leukemia, where there's an accumulation of promyelocytes. But you've got to remember, that's not the only AML with promyelocytes, but this one is characterised by that. And it's the only one with promyelocyte in its name. Mm. It is, is it? however, defined by the presence of this particular translocation, the 1517 translocation, or the PML-RARA translocation. And that's a translocation involving the retinoic acid receptor alpha gene, RARA, on chromosome 17, and the promyelocytic leukemia gene, PML, on chromosome 15. The retinoic acid receptor, which is coded by RAVA, is usually dependent on retinoic acid or vitamin A for regulation of transcription, and that's, that's uh, where uh, vitamin, comes, vitamin A comes in as a therapy. But when you fuse these two genes together, PML and RAVA, RARA, this, my lisp is really coming through on this one, you create a chimeric monster. So that blocks transcription and differentiation of granulocytes, so they're no longer able to mature, and you just get a whole bunch of promyelocytes, immature cells. Okay, lots of words there. So slowing it down, the things you need to remember if you're a medical student for your exams are APML, T1517 translocation, and PML RARA. Mm, exactly. If you're a haematologist, remember the rest. <laughs> it's cool, it's cool stuff. All right, so how does this APML present? So usually it's... Uh, it's got all the features of pancytopenia that you get in a normal AML. You've got the easy fatigability because you don't have any hemoglobin. Fat what? <laughs> Fatig fatigability. You've got all the infections because you're neutropenic. And uh, then you've got the hemorrhagic findings because you don't have platelets. You've got the petechia and all of that. But then they get 
really bad hemorrhagic findings because they have disseminated intravascular coagulation or DIC and that's why it's a medical emergency because it can cause pulmonary or cerebrovascular hemorrhage as it did in our particular unknown male in up to 40% of patients and a 10 to 20% incidence of early hemorrhagic death so that's why it's serious that's why I power walked. Wow okay so let's talk a little bit about what DIC is so it's basically when um, the clotting cascade has been activated everywhere and we essentially run out of clotting factors. So in this terrible situation where you've got both thrombosis and bleeding, you've used up all your clotting factors in the small vessels, which is annoying because you're now not perfusing your organs enough. Because there's blood clots in all the small vessels. Exactly. But then you're also bleeding because you don't have any more plates or your platelets. You've got no more clotting factors. So I'm sitting in ED. I've got there. A little bit breathless, but I've got there. Um, and so I have a look at his results, and now the coags have come back, and my worst fears are confirmed. He is indeed in DIC. So what do you think I saw? So fibrinogen is usually um, very decreased. So it was less than one in his case. Okay, INR increased. So it was three because he had no clotting factors, and APTT was up as well at 40. So true blue DIC. What would you do next, Beck, if you're in my position? Um... Well, the, the thing that's going to kill this man, as you said earlier, is the DIC. So before doing any funky hematological tests, I would treat that. So you're not, you're not treating it, I guess. To truly treat DIC, you've got to treat the underlying cause. It never happens in isolation, but you've got to kind of support him through it. So I basically called up um, pathology and said, give me all your blood products, anything you've got. <laughs> so we gave him a whole bunch of packer blood cells, fresh, flo- fresh frozen plasma, a few pools of platelets, and also some cryoprecipitate, which I had never heard of until I treated DIC for the first time. But basically, it's got fibrinogen in it, um, as well as factor 8, factor 13, and von Willebrand factor. We didn't have a hell of a lot of it out in the country, so we just gave him everything we had, which was about, I think, a total of about 17 units or something like that. But you can give, like, 20, 40. You can give a lot of cryoprecipitate in DIC. 17 units. Yeah. So it's not like packer blood cells if you give one or two or whatever. You just pump them through because they they just chew through it so quickly the next call i made was to a hematologist because i wanted to know does this actually look like um, apml on the blood film and the hematologist said yes it it probably is so what would they well well done (laughs) i think is essentially the point of the podcast (laughs) (laughs) i am very smart (laughs) (laughs) okay i think we can wrap up there uh, no, what, what's the, what do you see on blood film with APML? Okay, so you see promyelocytes, which is quite unsurprising. Mm. So what do they actually look like? So they're large, uh, they're myeloid precursors with variable morphology, and they've got a high nucleus to cytoplasmic ratio. The cardinal feature is all these violet granules, this kind of purple haze type picture is what Jimi Hendrix would say. And then <laughs> <laughs> promyelocytes in APML are larger and typically have creased, folded, bilobed, kidney-shaped or dumbbell-shaped nuclei. Don't worry about that, that's... Um, like hematology training type stuff. You don't have to remember all of that. But just remember there is a particular picture of APML on blood film. You can kind of start to get a sense that this is APML just by looking at the blood film closely. Next call I made was to the pharmacist to see if there was any treatment for this because I wanted to fix the underlying DIC. So what did I want to give him? All transretinoic acid. Or ATRA as we like to call it. So that was that wonder drug I was telling you about before that had turned APML from a uniformly fatal disease to something that almost everyone survives if they can get through that first scary bit. The way it works, it dissociates the N-core hydacyl complex, I think that's how you say that, from Ra and allows DNA transcription and differentiation of immature leukemic promyelocytes into mature granulocytes. I think that's really cool because most... 
uh, chemotherapy just kills the cells and kills a whole bunch of other cells. Otherwise, then you just hope for the best. But this actually turns the cells into what they're supposed to be in the first place, into fully mature uh, granulocytes. So it allows differentiation. Yeah, exactly. Of the immature yeah. promyelocytes. Quite unique in that way. And that's part of the reason it's so uh, well tolerated compared to a lot of other chemotherapy because it's not focused on cytotoxicity. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. So the, the big thing to know about Atro, if you're just a HMO and intern, is that um, it has a side effect of differentiation syndrome. We're not exactly sure how this works, but basically when you give someone Atro, it can cause a release of inflammatory vasoactive cytokines, and that can lead to a pulmonary edema-type picture. So the reason you've got to know this, because if you're covering heme at night or afternoon or whatever else, you'll get called to do fluid reviews all the time, uh, or people will say that you're that someone's short of breath and probably fluid overloaded. But if someone's got APML and recently been started on Atra within a week or so, you've got to think of differentiation syndrome. Because it presents very sim- similarly with dyspnea, edema, sometimes unexplained fever as well. And it's got a different treatment. It's not furuzumide, it's steroids. Mm, okay. And so one of the differentiating factors between fluid overload and this differentiation syndrome is that patients tend to be hypotensive rather than hypertensive. Although, obviously, that's not a particularly um, sensitive or specific test. Yeah, and people with heart failure are often fluid overloaded and hypotensive at the same time as well. But, so, so that's actually... <laughs> well, it's a good point. Often they would be, but it's not a perfect way of differentiating. It's just something you've got to have in the back of your mind. Um, and then you'd call the reach to see whether they think this is differentiation syndrome or not. And you don't actually stop the atrophy. In true hematological style, they don't stop their chemotherapy for anything. They just kind of push on. Give them steroids, keep giving them the atra. All right, so then the next thing I did was try to get the patient out of there. It couldn't, we were in a rural hospital at this stage. He could not be managed out where I was. Um, so having done hematology, though, I know probably what would have happened next. Um, the residents would have sighed because there's a lot of organising that has to be happen really, really quickly when an acute loop comes in, and particularly when an APML acute loop comes in. The first test you've got to think about are to confirm the APML. You've got to actually find that 1517 translocation. So that can be done one of three ways. What's one way? So you can do a carrier type, the conventional one. It's very specific, but it takes a few days and there are a lot of false negatives. So I, I did this in medical, medical school. I don't know if you did, but we actually did some carrier typing. It's where you look at the, the actual kind of black and white chromosomes and you see what patterns they fit into, that kind of thing. Uh, but we have better ways of doing that these days. So FISH is one, fluorescence in situ hybridization, and that's the really high yield one in the short term it's the fastest test. So that will tell you very quickly whether this is true APML when you actually need ATRA. Um, and then the gold standard is reverse transcriptase PCR or poly- polymerase chain reaction. And that's really useful because it will also be tested la- later down the track to see whether they have any minimal residual disease. So it's used for monitoring as well. Mm. Other tests that this patient, unknown male, presumably has a name by this point, but still unknown male to me, would he needs a bone marrow biopsy because you need to have a look at all those same tests on bone marrow um, cells as well as peripheral cells. You've got to organise a Hickman line. That was always a nightmare because they need chemotherapy. You can't give that peripherally. And a gait scan, what's that? Uh, so it's a nuclear medicine scan. Mm, so it's a really precise measure of ejection fraction and hematologists and oncologists like it because it gives them a really precise uh, measurement of the heart and can tell them down the track whether they've um, caused any cardiotoxicity with their chemo. 
So I guess the other thing is that you you need to make sure that before you start giving something that will immunosuppress the patient that he doesn't have any insulin infections. So you do your hepatitis B, C, HIV, CMV, EBV, HSV, any other three-letter acronyms that you can think <laughs> of, Quantiferon Gold, look for Q fever, Coxiella Burnetti. And strongyloides, if they've been overseas or come from overseas, and you probably do some strongyloides serology as well. All right, so ongoing treatment with Atra, it's actually quite a long course. You don't just give them vitamin A a couple of times and then send them home. It's, these guys um, stay in hospital for a long time, about a month, month and a half. And although Atra is well tolerated, what you add to it, arsenic, is not. It's pretty nasty. So we always had a lot of difficulty with, with these patients on um, arsenic. They'd get such terrible nausea. And the really annoying part was it prolonged your QT. Uh, your QT interval and the ECG, which meant that you couldn't give a lot of antiemetics because they all prolonged the QT as well. And there's just this horrible balancing act every day, mm. like counting out the number of squares to see whether I can give them some endansetron or whatever else that day. Can you give anything else? Uh, there's some that don't cause QT prolongation as much. I think metoclopramide's a little bit better. But all the, all the really good ones um, tend to cause QT prolongation. Mm. And so, as I said, the prognosis is really good. If you get them through that acute phase, if you've recognized it early, if you've done your power walking, get them through the DIC, and then uh, you can um, give them the atra, and then they end up doing pretty well. So about a 90% survival rate with the best therapy. So that's arsenic plus atra. If they're elderly, if they're over 65, I think, so the cutoff that's generally given, the prognosis is quite a bit worse. But if they're youngish, then they do well. And then the survival rates without the arsenic is about 80% as well. So that's APML, a relatively rare but very, very important thing to recognise. Thanks, Double. Cool. Surprisingly relevant. <laughs> Thanks very much. And uh, hop on Facebook if you want or Twitter or whatever else you like to do and uh, catch us there. The Quizlet will be available as well if you want to revise anything that we've talked about. Thanks very much for listening. Thanks, guys. Bye.